Diakonasa Cops Calling is sponsored by Luciano's Woodworking. Luciano's Woodworking is owned and operated by Carlos Luciano Jr., and he works with each of his customers to create hand-carved wooden plaques, signs, wall hangings, and more. Currently, he is working on a wall hanging for Diakonasa Cops Calling, and I am super excited to see it once it's completed. He's worked with me to meet the style, the colors, the print, and the frame I want for this project. You can see his talented work. Just check out Luciano's Woodworking on Facebook and Instagram. Whether you want a welcome sign for your home, a plaque to display challenge coins, a hand-carved piece of your favorite sports team, a personalized stovetop cover, retirement plaques for those in the military or in law enforcement, wall art for rooms in your house, or any other similar project, he can do it. Carlos is a full-time police officer, a husband, and a father, but he enjoys kicking up the dust with this side hobby. He's a busy guy, but you will not be disappointed as you patiently wait for him to complete your project. So check out Luciano's Woodworking right now on Facebook and Instagram. See his work, share his work, share him on social media, and then let him know what project you'd like him to start for you. This podcast is for grown-ups only. Some of the content may not be appropriate for little ears like mine. In order to provide care, whether it's medical or mental, uh, mental health, um, it has to come from a place where that worker is safe. Because the moment that that safety is breached, that that can no longer continue. You know, when I was out, especially with um, with the officers doing the co-response, uh, people would hurl insults at me. I had people spit on me. Like, it, and that was just a small taste a small taste of what police officers go through. Welcome to Diakonasa Cops Calling, episode number 17. That's right, 17. I'm Anthony Weaver, and I'm pretty pumped to be back and bringing you a brand new episode after a very nice break. Uh, This break nicely coincided with Lauren and I getting away, um, some time away uh, for our 11th wedding anniversary. Uh, We had a really great time. It was super nice to just slow down for a little bit. Uh, As you know, or as you probably know, I officially retired from the Lancaster City Police Department in January. And by February, I had released my very first episode of this podcast. So I pretty much dove right into uh, doing this. And uh, it was just nice to take a a little bit of a breather here the past uh, few weeks. Uh, I I do think that that's probably how the summer is going to go uh, with me just taking some breaks to enjoy the weather and vacations and just the kids being off school and that sort of thing. Um, So, uh, but it is nice to be back um, and releasing a a brand new episode. I was pretty pumped to, uh, to get behind the mic and, and do that, uh, which is a a good sign uh, for myself. Now, even though I was on break, anyone who, who knows me, uh, well, also knows that I didn't take two weeks completely off. That would not be my style. Uh, I'm always trying to kick up the dust after something. So the first thing uh, you need to know is that I was really kind of kicking up the dust um, after my patrons a little bit. Uh, we, uh, Lauren and I released a patrons-only episode uh, in those few weeks that I was off and on break. Uh, I also reached out to them with some polls to hear what they were thinking about some of the things I was doing on the podcast to help me begin to pick some music uh, for Q the Dip segment, which is coming up uh, very shortly. And uh, I don't know that I've completely landed on the music I'm going to use. I'm going to have some music on this episode for Q the Dip, um, but I'm still waiting for some people to answer the poll or, or at least give patrons a chance to answer the that poll if they want to. Uh, the other thing I was working on is our very first prize drawing uh, for some leather drink, uh, leather handmade drink koozies that Detective Gary Lowe has made uh, for our very first uh, patron prize drawing. And that drawing, uh, the winner of that drawing will be announced in the coming weeks. Uh, so if you're not a patron, you're obviously missing out. Uh, so go to Diakonos ACC dot podbean.com and click the become a patron button to learn a little bit more and support the podcast on that note i have some new patrons that get a shout out uh, first goes to gary sensnick and his family and the second goes to the whitmer family 
Uh, I want to thank both of them and their family so much for becoming patrons uh, of the podcast. Um, I appreciate their support, the support of their families, and the encouragement they have given me uh, really since the beginning. Both both these families have given me support uh, since the very uh, beginning, and I really appreciate that. Now, before I get into my conversation with this week's guest, it's time for To the Dude. As you know, Q the Dip stands for kicking up the dust in pursuit. And every week we pick a winner of someone who has really gone above and beyond uh, a law enforcement officer who has gone above and beyond. So this week's Q the Dip winner is Deputy Jacob Kirby of the Indian River County Sheriff's Office in Florida for catching, get this, a two-month-old baby that was thrown at him by a suspect. Just, this just happened towards the end of May. Uh, it happened after a 40-minute vehicle pursuit. I don't believe any of the deputies knew there was a baby in the car, but the suspect obviously did, and he still decided to ram a detective's car, dodge roadblocks, and drive over stop sticks, but still kept going. Uh, finally, at the end of this 40-minute pursuit, they were able to get the suspect boxed into an apartment complex parking lot, at which time the suspect got out of his car and threw a two-month-old baby at Deputy Kirby overhand from about six feet away. This is crazy, folks. Uh, The deputies then tackled the suspect uh, who began kicking them and biting them and just acting like some things I probably shouldn't say. Uh, Anyways, I salute Sheriff Eric Flowers, who, following the incident, stated, you can't throw a baby at us and expect us to treat you with kid gloves. I agree, Sheriff Flowers. Completely agree with that statement. And I also salute the cue the dip winner this week, Deputy Jacob Kirby, for catching that two-month-old poor little baby that was thrown at him. All right, this week is part one of my conversation with Ryan Davies, who for over two years was employed as a mental health liaison and caseworker assigned to the Lancaster City Police Department. Uh, That's how I got to know him, and uh, we're going to dive right into this interview uh, right now. My guest on this episode has a background in behavioral health, uh, having been employed with the Lancaster County Behavioral Health from 2013 until 2019. During this employment, and from August 2017 until December 2019, he was assigned as a police liaison and uh, senior crisis counselor with the Lancaster City Police Department. He holds certificates in, but not limited to, crisis intervention team and psychological first aid. Currently, he is pursuing a Master of Science degree as a physician assistant, associate studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and is also a suicide prevention trainer and forensic consultant, where he consults with local police departments and conducts trainings in crisis de-escalation and suicide prevention. I'd like to welcome Ryan Davies to the podcast. Ryan, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it does not seem that long ago um, that y- you and I were working together at the front desk of the police station because when you were assigned to the police uh, station, you your kind of office, for lack of a better term, was at the front desk of the police station in the lobby. And it just it just doesn't seem that long ago that we were sitting there together, me doing desk sergeant duties, you doing your thing. Um, but Wow, yeah, it's been it's been a couple years already. It's been at least two years. Yeah. yeah. I mean that, I mean I started there over four or five years ago. And really when I was at the desk, that was really the beginning of that position because it kind of morphed as we um as as we were there longer to kind of being more on the street. But yeah, I remember those days on the desk fondly. <laughs> I don't know if I do. <laughs> I, I mean, here's the thing. That that desk was that was super aggravating position for me. I hated working the desk, but, um, and I don't know why. I think it was just because generally speaking, your phone was ringing and you had people coming into the lobby, but a lot of the people that were coming into the lobby and ringing your phone, 
a lot of times just wanted to tell you how terrible you were. <laughs> yeah, it was always so much nonsense that came in there too. Yeah. Um, yeah I, I don't know a single sergeant who liked working at that desk. I can't think of a single person who enjoyed their time there. Yeah. So it's totally fair. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what caused you, um, you know, I read down through your bio there in the intro, what caused you to have an interest in working in the mental health behavioral uh, field? So it was actually kind of an accident, uh, believe it or not. I, you okay. know, my undergrad is in philosophy, and I, I meant to go to law school, and I actually went to Penn State Law School for a single week, and just hated it. Um, so I left that and started taking some masters of social work classes and tried to figure out kind of what I wanted to do with my life. And I thought, well, working for the government sounds like it's okay, probably has good benefits. So, um, I found a job working for, uh, Lancaster County behavioral health as an intake counselor. Um, and the rest is history. So I, you know, when I first started, I didn't really have a passion for mental health, I would say, but it it certainly became that over the many years that I, I, I've been working in it. Um, but yeah, I sort of fell into the the whole gig. Okay. So what was it about law school that you didn't like? You lasted a week? Yeah, it was, it was just, just one week, you know? So when I started law school, they did this, um, uh, kind of like lecture and they had, uh, these, these four people come and talk to us. And one of them was like a lawyer who became a drug addict. Another one was a, a judge who lost his judgeship for, um, I think like, like, uh, giving people softer sentences in return for, for favors. Um, and then they also talked about like the depression and the suicide rates with, with lawyers. And then also, you know, back in, this was in 2012, this was when the economy was kind of tanking. Um, you know, uh, lawyer, the, you, everyone thinks that going to law schools like this automatic step to success. But at that time, 25% of new grads were defaulting on their student loans and couldn't find jobs. So I just kind of all of that made me realize maybe this isn't really what was for me. And to be honest, you know, I don't like being on that side um, of, of, of law and, and, you know, that I wanted to be a public defender. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, I, I really don't think I can do this. It just, it really wasn't for me. Yeah. So you kind of, you kind of explored, you got into uh, the mental health field, uh, behavioral health field, ended up getting um, a job there with Lancaster County Behavioral Health. What, what do you think surprised you the most as you got into that field and started working there? You know, the one big thing that surprised me the most, I would say, about working, especially as a government um, employee working in the mental health field, working for folks who usually don't have insurance or who have like state insurance, is that the resources that that a, a lot of people think are out there are really not out there. So in Lancaster County right now, the current wait time to see a psychiatrist for an adult is on the order of six months, especially if you have um, like Medicaid or if you have no insurance. Um and then to see like a pediatric psychiatrist. So if you're a kid and you need to see a psychiatrist, it's about a year. If you have autism, it's even longer than that. So the biggest thing that surprised me was that you always hear that, you know, if people need help, they should reach out. But really that the resources, um, they're not as solid as we all think they are. Um, and that was the biggest surprise to me. Okay. And why is that? Is it just a lack of people working at, in, those, in those fields and with that expertise? You know, it's a couple things. Uh, I think ultimately it boils down to money. So uh, back in the 1980s, we had all of these state-run um, hospitals where people with severe mental illness could go and be treated and could live their lives. Um, and then there was this big push to get all of those people out of the hospitals and get them into the community. Um, and then those those folks, they, they, they got pushed out into the community and then each county got these what's called block grants. So just a giant chunk of money to, to, to kind of help these folks out. But as the years progressed, that chunk of money got lower and lower and lower. Um, and now we have all these folks who are out in the community with severe mental illness, but we really don't have the financial resources to treat them. Also, you know, the um, AMA, which is the, the, um, the, the organization that controls kind of all MDs like doctors, um, they limit the number of residency spots uh, for, for people who are entering st- specific specialties. So for psychiatrists, there's only a certain number of residencies available. So they artificially limit the number of people who can go into the field. Um, and that just creates a shortage of physicians who can treat people, which is why we've really seen the rise of the mental health nurse practitioner and, and, and the, the physician assistant, because we're really trying to take up the mantle of, of, of caring for, for patients because there's such a shortage of doctors. And why did, why did they put a limit on that? 
You know, it's. I think it's really political. Uh, okay. They, they have their reasons. I, I think that a, a big reason would be simply money. I mean, it, it's like the reason that De Beers limits the number of diamonds available because the less diamonds there are, the more they're worth. Um, I, okay. I, I would say it's probably a financial incentive. Okay. And like going back to um, the the state run, you know, mental health facilities or hospitals uh, being being shut down. Do you think? I mean, obviously there was a push to do that. It was done. I, I've, you know, as a police officer, I always felt that that was a horrible decision uh, because like you said, all these people with these extensive mental health problems are just, are just kind of left out there in limbo. Um, what, what was the push to do that? And then do you think that was something that is kind of biting us in the rear end right now? And that, we should look at doing again or not. So, you know, I think it's, it's a really good thing in theory. So the goal in mental health care is always to treat in the least restrictive setting possible. So we we don't want to put, we don't want to have a patient go to a hospital if they don't need to go there. You know, if they can function in the community and be, be healthy and be safe, then it's perfectly fine. Um, And that was really the push when, when we closed a lot of these beds for the state hospitals and ended up closing actually a lot of the state hospitals is that these folks who who traditionally were treated in a hospital setting, they were able to function in the community with the, with proper support um, and care. The problem, really became was that that support became less and less as time went on got you um so i think that having folks with severe mental illness treated in the community i think that's the ultimate goal that is how we should be kind of focusing on the future of mental health care but the resources really need to be there and they they certainly haven't and i you know it's i'm sure it's similar in, in policing you know you you have all of these really really good goals but if the financial resources aren't there um, then there's really not much that you can do. Right, right. So you, uh, what was the position you started out at initially for Lancaster Behavioral Health? So I was an intake counselor. So what, what I would do is I would um, talk to people who needed uh, mental health services who either didn't have insurance or couldn't afford services. And I was kind of the one to advocate for them to, this, to the, the county government to say whether or not they needed services. Got you, got you. And then... Um, from August 2017 to December 2019, you were assigned to the Lancaster uh, City Police Department. That's how I got to know you as the police uh, liaison crisis counselor. Can you describe that position and what your duties and role were in that position? Sure. Yeah. So as a crisis counselor, your your role is to sort of work as a mental health um, EMT or paramedic. So when someone has a mental health crisis, let's say they're suicidal, they're homicidal, they're unable to care for their basic needs, um, crisis intervention gets involved and uh, tries to either tries to first assess whether or not that person is safe, and then get that person to a place of safety. Uh, sometimes that includes like getting family involved and doing um, in the moment kind of uh, counseling. Sometimes that involves uh, getting a, a person to a hospital if they're willing, and then if if they're not safe um, and they're not willing to go to a place of safety, then that would involve uh, filing what's called a 302, which is an involuntary commit, which, which I'm sure you're very familiar, um, and, and getting that person to the hospital, unfortunately, against their will. So as a crisis counselor, you're really acting as kind of like the boots on the ground, as it were, um, in the mental health world. Right. And that role with the police department, my understanding is that um, Lancaster City Police Department was kind of at the forefront or one of the few police departments that had someone uh, with your type of expertise and from Lancaster Behavioral Health or, or from any behavioral health for that matter, assigned kind of with the police department to assist us and go out on calls with us and, and assist us on those mental health calls. Is that correct? Or, or are a lot of departments doing that? So that is correct. So when it first started um, 12 or so years ago, it was it was a really, it was a pilot program. Um, and it was uh, something that my predecessor, Dave, uh, really championed and, and formed into something very, very good. Now, the myth goes that the, um, the chief of police at the time and then the head of the mental health department um, uh, at uh, for the county, uh, they were at, at a bar, and the chief said, "I bet you, you can't get me my own crisis counselor." And then the the head said, "Well, we'll see what happens." And then the position was created. <laughs> I don't know if that's true. That's just the myth I've heard. That that is the first time I've heard that myth. But you know, 
<laughs> who knows? You never know how stuff gets done in government, but but I, I will say that that is that you know that position was a pioneer, and I you know when when I took it over, it was really kind of based at the desk, and then that crisis counselor would go out um, when called by the police. And what I did with it is I changed it into something called the co-responder model, which we're now seeing take a, take off all across the country. And the co-responder model sees a police officer and then a trained mental health person riding side by side in the car and going and being the first person to show up on a scene of a, a mental health emergency. Okay. And when you came into that position, um, did you have any preconceived ideas about the police um, and or how they handled uh, mental health calls? Sure. Well, f- I mean, first, I, I you know, I'd, I'd never really been around, uh, you know, police officers before that. Um, I'd been pulled over a few times, but other than <laughs> that, I, I've, I hadn't had any uh, interactions with police officers. I was really nervous. You know, I, I really thought that it was going to be this super macho world that um, that I really wasn't going to be able to be a part of. I thought it was going to be this really tight-knit community, which it ended up being, um, but I was so afraid that it'd be, it'd be hard for me to kind of um, become uh, trusted. Uh, amongst the group. Um, and that, it, that was something that was, you know, uh, I had to kind of work on and, 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 and tackle, but, um, you know, working with police officers was such a gift being able to see them in their, their daily environment and see them in their world. And I learned so much and it was, it was such a wonderful opportunity that I will truly never forget. Yeah. Yeah. I think anytime you come into a community like that, because because law enforcement generally there is a level of camaraderie there uh, between most people, and there's also uh, let's just face it, cops generally have giant egos. Um, there is they they have <laughs> they have they have chips on their shoulder because you know of things they've been involved in, so they they start thinking they're really something. Um, and uh, yeah, so I I could I can understand and appreciate how that would be a little. Uh, overwhelming uh, when you when you first came in, but how long how long did you feel like it took you to kind of work your way in and and feel like you were part of, um, you know the the team and 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 accepted by the police officers you were working with on a daily basis. Well, I think it happened in steps. I'll say my my very first day, I was driving home from the police station, and I was so excited about how well the day went that I was on the phone with my girlfriend. Um, and I, uh, I went the wrong way, uh, down a street and got pulled <laughs> over by, by, by two Lancaster city police officers. And they were so nice to me. I was like, uh, you know, hi, I'm your new crisis counselor. I'm so sorry that I've done this. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it this, this whole process happened in steps and, um, it was not as difficult as I thought it would be. And that was really thanks to Dave and Sarah, who were my predecessors, um, being crisis counselors there at the police department. They really showed the police officers there that the position was um, worthwhile and was something that could be helpful, especially on the street. Um, I would say that full buy-in probably took six months to a year. Okay. Yeah. And I, and I remember uh, both Dave and Sarah being there. And I'm assuming, um, you know, at my relationship with them and and knowing them, um, I think they both had a favorable view of our police department and generally how we handled mental health calls. So I'm I'm assuming they had nice things to say about the police department, which probably helped you as well. Oh, absolutely. I actually I had several lunches with them before I started the position um, when I got you know the the role there, and uh, they were they were really um, instrumental in helping me kind of decide how to go in there and I, all the big ideas that I had, how to to implement them and not to really tackle things as fast as I wanted, but to to kind of take things slow and and learn and grow. So yeah, no, I'm I'm very grateful for them. I'm also grateful for for several of the officers. Um, I had uh, a, a few early adopters that um, really really took on the co-responder program um, and showed that not only to other officers but but to my superiors that it was something that was a worthwhile endeavor. Um, I'm very fortunate uh, in that regard. Now, when you say the co-responder model, like I I, I do remember um, you oftentimes once you came in. Um, and what, what sh- you generally would st- work kind of in the evenings, you would start around three or four. Is that right? 
Yeah, so in my opinion, that's really the best time to have a crisis counselor in a a co-responder setting because really all the mental health services, they shut down at 5 and you're really just left with the emergency department. So I would work from 3.30 p.m. to whenever things died down, which was anywhere from midnight to 1 or 2 o'clock. Okay. And the co-responder model, were you every single shift jumping in with an officer and riding or... Yeah. Was it just kind of on a shift by shift basis? It, well, it was shift by shift with who I would jump in with and who would have me. But um, yeah, most shifts I was out in the car for the entire shift. Okay. Yeah. I, I, uh, I, I'm going back to, cause when you, so you started there in 2017. So I was already promoted to Sergeant. Um, and one of the, one of the best things about being a Sergeant is you don't have to ride with anybody. That's <laughs> yeah, uh, true. <laughs> um, which, you know, don't get me wrong, as an officer, I loved having partners. I some of my some of the partners I had, well, really all the partners I had throughout my career were excellent. Um, but there is something to be said too for being able to be in a car by yourself sometimes. So when you when you came uh over, you know, as a sergeant, I wasn't you know, you, you didn't ride with me. What were most officers like okay with you riding with them? Were they because uh, because having having someone ride with you who isn't a sworn police officer at times can be it can be difficult because you have to be careful about what positions you're putting them in and calls you're going to and and what you can and can't do when you can and can't get out of the car those sort of things so how did you navigate that with the officers you were with yeah I, I would say that it was not only difficult for them but it was probably a pain in the butt most of the time um i you know <laughs> I, i'm sure i was um in the beginning very much unwanted on 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 several uh several of those ride-alongs but um you know it, it is it is tricky right you're you're balancing uh you know how much is this person actually going to be useful versus how much of the time are they going to be a hindrance that i'm going to have to worry about their safety and not only my own and everyone else is on scene and i you know i'll be completely honest in the very beginning i did not make that easy at all i'm very much a, a jump in and get your hands dirty type of person so i i definitely overstepped my bounds several times and was very quickly reminded of that thankfully but um yeah, there. You know, I still remember one of my very first times uh, going out in the car with an officer. Um, uh, I there was a fella who was suicidal, and he was sitting up um, on, you know, kind of sitting with his back on the driver's side door. And you know, me being the counselor guy, you know, kind of just wanting to connect with this person, I just walked right up and sat down next to this guy so I could talk to him. Um, which is kind of like, I mean, in the mental health world, you always want to try and meet someone either at or below their eye line. And right. I, I remember at the end of that, uh, talking to the officer, and he's like, "What were you thinking? Like, what if that person had a knife? Like, I can't make sure that you're safe while you're sitting there. That was." so stupid um and it really kind of made me think like oh wow this is this is actually real out here this is dangerous and you have to be really careful i was very fortunate to have a lot of officers who showed me the ropes and there were even some sergeants on night shift that really were helpful to me in in helping me understand where i was to be when i was not to be somewhere um and when i was needed yeah that that's always the balance and i think sometimes that's why the police get such a bad rap with these mental health calls is because we can't we can't put ourselves or other people in bad situations and usually if 911 is being called the situation has spiraled to a point where um it's it's probably a lot more uh dangerous or volatile than um someone calling you on the phone like in the intake position and asking you to come out to them and and help them or something like that um, so yeah, that there's always that, always that balance and, and trying to, uh, you know, keep, keep you safe as a, a civilian worker, you know, they're helping us, but also making sure that, that you're safe because ultimately it comes down to that officer, uh, making the right decisions to, to, uh, keep you and everyone else safe at the scene. Well, absolutely. And, you know, when, while we were on scene, I, you know, the, the officer was the, my, my officer partner was always the one in charge. Um, they, they always were the one who made the final call. If for some reason they felt something was unsafe, um, they were very quick to let me know and I would stop. So, I mean, crisis counseling, uh, you know, and I would consider myself an expert in, in crisis intervention. Uh, you know, it, it has to come from a place of safety. It's the same with EMTs, right? It's the same with paramedics. They're not going to show up somewhere that they're unsafe. In order to provide care, whether it's medical or mental, 
uh, mental health, um, it has to come from a place where that worker is safe because the moment that that safety is breached, that that can no longer continue. And with crisis counseling, there's so much nuance. There's there's so many um, variables that you have to adjust for as you're talking to someone that if safety is on your mind, is first and, and, and forefront, it, it'll never be successful, which is right. why I was so, so um, grateful for all the officers who were always on scene because I mean, without them, uh, I, I think all of my, my crisis intervention skills would have been for nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'll say for those times where we did have, uh, you know, people like yourself assigned to the police department, um, coming, having you or, or someone with your training on a call, like a mental health call, because I personally, I hated going on mental health calls. Because there, there, there's so much unknown there, and while we, the police, have some training to know how to deal with it and to talk to people, um, and that training increased and got better as I went on in my career, but it still was, you know, we're not. That's not our ultimate training. Our ultimate training is to deal with, you know, calls for service, nine one one calls, um, and try to, you know, figure out the problem and solve the problem. Um, not spend inordinate amounts of time uh, talking to someone and trying to get them the resources they need. That that becomes part of what we do at times. But having you guys there to help us with that was was huge, and I always appreciated having someone like you with your expertise on calls like that with mental health um, subjects. Absolutely, and you know, it, I, I think it's such an unfair position that police officers now are are placed in is you're really expected to do absolutely everything. I think people forget that, you know, the the the, the prime directive if there if there was such a thing um, you know, with police to my understanding is safety. You're there to enforce the law and and keep the peace. Um, you're not there to, to, to give people counseling. You're not there to to make people feel better about their lives. You're you're there to keep keep things safe. Um, and you know, I, I think more and more and more we're we're really losing sight of that, and we're expecting uh, that we're expecting people who don't exist. Um, and I think that the great part about a co-response model is that you have a team working together. And we're seeing this pop up everywhere. It's popped up several other places in Pennsylvania. It's it's been in several documentaries now. It's popped up all across the country. Like it it works because you have someone who is keeping the safety of the scene. You have someone with a very specific set of skills that that can ensure crisis intervention um, takes place in the manner that it should. Not only that, but when you also have a police officer who's trained um, in something like the CIT model, which is the crisis intervention team, um, we call it the Memphis model, um, then that person acts also as a partner in that crisis intervention process. And many, many of the police officers that I've worked with are trained in that model and they use those skills. Um, and, and when those things are working in synergy, it's just, it's a wonderful process. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I would say too, like I was never CIT trained and, um, you know, I, you know, I've, I've said this on other episodes. I, I was like a very big, like, like law and justice. Like my, my main goal as a police officer and my main mission when I was on the job was to, to catch bad guys. And so, you know, to, and I'm not saying this is a, a good thing, but I probably could have done a lot more, work and and training on the mental health side of things for me i i just always try to approach it very common sense like talk calmly to the person um try to ascertain um and and help them as best you can not get them you know fired up and not say silly things to them and and act like an idiot um you know just try to i found that just you know really developing the ability to talk to people uh, was was important as I went on in my career, but having you guys with me on those types of calls was always huge, a huge help to me. Well, and Anthony, I, and I, I have to pause. It's it's so strange. We talked about this previously that I have to call you <laughs> Anthony and not Sergeant Weaver. So if I uh, if I if I screw it up, you just yell at me. But um, you know, I've actually seen you on scenes and been there, um, and I think you have what what we call in in my business a therapist voice. That like you're 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 very calm. 
you you never raise your voice above the other person unless you absolutely have to um and that is like the the number one thing that i teach to other officers and to uh, medical professionals is you know you can always escalate a situation but de-escalation is going to be 30 times harder than than the escalating part so you know i think that's something you always did so well when i would watch you do it yeah well you must have not been on some calls with me then Well, we're, we're pointing out the good ones. We're pointing out yeah, the good ones. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and in all fairness, on mental health calls where I knew that, you know, the person I was dealing with had, um, you know, was you know, something was going on with them uh, and their mental health, I, I did try to very uh, manage my emotions and, and uh, my annoyances and, and things like that um, as much as I could. So I appreciate you saying that. But when you came into the police department, obviously you had you had the the people ahead of you, um, Dave and, and, uh, Sarah who were, you know, telling you about what to expect and, and how it was, but did you, were you surprised or not surprised generally about how the police you were with engaged with people that were having, uh, mental health problems? I think that, you know, that's a really tough question because now that I've been, I did this for so many years, I'm, I'm probably very biased because, you know, the police officers that I worked with were exemplary and they did such wonderful work uh, with, I call them my people, but with, you know, with um, people who have mental illness. Um, I, you know, I was, I, I would say that I actually was, was not surprised. Um, you know, I, I, the, the police officers that I've worked with have, um, you know, always been very calm and patient in most cases, uh, with, 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 um, people who have mental illness and they, you know, I was, you know, one thing that did surprise me was the vulnerability that officers would have with me when we were in the car. And they would probably hate that I'm saying this, but, um, <laughs> you know, you know, the, when officers would open up to, up to me about kind of their, their frustrations and their, their trouble with the job, you know, and this, and this wasn't part of my role, you know, I wasn't like right. there to be their counselor, but um, inevitably when someone finds out you work in the mental health field, like you, you're their counselor. <laughs> um, uh, but just the vulnerability that was there in, in, in such a, like kind of a protected world uh, was, was truly awesome. And I've always felt that that was, it's kind of the coolest part about working in mental health is that people will tell you things that they would not tell even their closest family members. Um, and to have that trust, I think that was what was surprising to me was that it was so freely given um, after I sort of proved my, my um, trustworthiness and, and worth to them. Um, yeah. That was, that was the most surprising thing to me. Okay. And, and I actually, I remember uh, one specific or maybe a couple specific times uh, on on the desk when I was a desk sergeant, and you you just started your shift, so you hadn't gone out yet, um, and you'd be over there on the other side. Uh, and I remember having some pretty in depth conversations with you uh, myself. Um, you know, just talking about stuff, talking about stuff that wore on me, and 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 things like that. So, yeah, there's something about maybe it's just your presence, Ryan. Maybe your presence just uh, causes people to want to unload. Well, I appreciate that. Then I, you know, at least I'm in the right field. Um, yeah, you know, I, it's, it's just something that I've always really, um, appreciated in people. I think that if, if I could pick one trait that, that I really value in, in, in people, it's, it's their ability to open up, um, and be vulnerable. And surprisingly enough, police officers are really good at it. Um, and you know what, if you take the time to listen, they have so much to say. And they really, it, unfortunately, you know, if you're a police officer, you're always worried about being attacked. You're always worried about violence happening to you. You're always worrying about, um, you know, the public uh, coming after you. You're worried about your superiors coming after you. You're, you're being you're kind of pressured from all of these different sides. And unfortunately, that that really breeds this this kind of air of, you know, I'm going to keep everything to myself. I am going to just, I'm going to wall this off. I am going to be an island of one. And that's kind of what we, you were saying earlier. You know, they, we all have a chip on our shoulder. You all have a chip on your shoulder. Um, right. And uh, it, you know, I think that I, I wish that police officers had more spaces, kind of like this podcast where, where they could talk and share their experiences. And I wish the public could see that too. Um, because I think that it would really help humanize um, uh, policing, and we we need that. We need that yeah. very very much right now. Yeah, and and I mean to be completely honest, that's one of the the missions of the podcast is is to kind of humanize people and help people better understand 
uh, why police officers do what they do. And you're right. It, it's a, it's a pressure cooker type uh, profession and, and guys and gals just don't feel like there's very many uh, trusted people that they can talk to um, and really um, speak about, you know, the things that are, that are bothering them because, you know, they just, they, they don't, it's one of those jobs where they just don't have the right or the ability to, to talk freely about things because everything they say is, is scrutinized. Everything they do is scrutinized and they're constantly worried about being attacked verbally, physically, um, you know, just internally in the department, um, you know, with things. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's quite a thing. You know, I'll, I'll say that that was, um, something that was, shocking to me you know so when i went out and did the co-responder thing you know i got a vest it said crisis intervention on it um and you know i i'm i'm a big guy i weigh like 250 pounds like i, I do not look like a police officer i've got a big old pot belly on me I'm, i have a big <laughs> i have a big beard like you you know me um but you know when i was out especially with um with the officers doing the co-response uh people would hurl insults at me i had people spit on me like it then that was just a small taste a small taste of what police officers go through. And it just, I don't know. That's that you, I, there's no, it makes perfect sense why someone would wall themselves off. If that's what they experience every, every hour of, of, of their working lives. So that's, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's a tough world to be in. Um, and, um, you know, I really commend the people who continue to do it, especially now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you saying that. And I'm, I'm sure, you know, those officers that listen to the show will appreciate that too. Kind of getting, going back a little bit here when we're talking about, you know, the co-response thing, did you feel generally when the police, um, and you responded, did you, did you generally feel police presence was helpful at these mental health calls or a hindrance? Oh, helpful. Uh, most of the time, helpful. I, I can pick out uh, maybe a few instances, um, and these officers all, all know about them because we, we had talks about them after, where maybe they lost their cool um, and it sort of set things back, but they may, that's maybe three or four times. Um, okay. I, I can also tell you many more instances where someone saved my neck because I was being... Um, stupid or i was i was sticking my neck out where it doesn't belong um and and an officer protected me from from harm um i you know in my other crisis counselors that i worked with um i know a few of them listen to your show um they will all agree that uh police officers uh when they're on scene um they're always very much happy that they are there because they really help the whole crisis negotiation go um a lot more smoothly. I can think of one instance where I had um, uh, a patient who uh, we needed to serve a warrant and get this person to the hospital. Um, and when I laid eyes on this person, um, they were not wearing a shirt and it was sort of like a car accident. You just can't look away. Um, and, you know, we were getting ready to walk down a set of steps. So I turned around. So I showed my back to this person and I'm, I'm sure all the police officers listening to your show are thinking, Oh, he is an idiot. Um, <laughs> and as I did this, uh, the partner I was working with that day, uh, kind of stepped into my place and saw this person was holding like a bottle of raid in one hand, uh, like bug spray and a knife in the other and lunged. And I, you know, I, if that, if that officer wasn't there, who knows what would have happened, but, um, you know, that's, that's why we as crisis counselors are so helpful to have police officers on scene because uh, it's just the, the information and tools and skills that they bring is in, invaluable. Right. And uh, how did, how did that, how that end Did the officer just, was the officer just able to disarm that person or. No, that, that whole situation took three or so hours. Um, we, uh, we, we sort of backed out of that and sort of regrouped on the first floor of this house um, and then, uh, myself and a sergeant, uh, got up a ladder. I remember the fire department came and they, they put a ladder up for us. And you know, like I said, I'm not, I'm not the most fit person. I'm like, oh shit, I have to climb this ladder. <laughs> um, so I'm climbing the ladder. All I can think in my head is like, please don't fall. Please don't fall. You're going to look like an idiot. Anyway, we get up on this roof to talk to this person. And there was also an, another, uh, sergeant who was inside, um, who was on the other side of the door. And we were able to distract this person long enough that that other person was able to get in to the room and disarm them without any incident. Um, and that, that situation could have ended, uh, I think very, very poorly. And because of very, very good training and, and, you know, the, the, the great officers I worked with, it didn't. Right. Uh, but yeah. 
And yeah. I think those are the types of things, like those things really do happen all the time. Um, unfortunately, uh, in our day and age, you, you only hear about the ones that go the other way where, you know, the person, you know, um, you know, is, is shot or, and, or killed by the police, um, in a, in a situation like that, where based on what you're describing to me at, at, at certain points during that would have actually been justified on the police end of things. Uh, but obviously, uh, you know, uh, not, not the best way for it to happen. So it, it's, uh, well, sure. It, it, it may not be the best way to happen, but it's, I mean, sometimes that's how it does happen. And, right. you know, and you're right completely that it would have been justified. A person lunged at myself and an officer with a knife, you know, and people, you know, I've had, uh, uh, other, other people from, from my kind of my medical world attack me a little bit, uh, about this and, and say, well, you know what, this is, this is kind of what quote unquote, what they signed up for. And it's just, I think it's just such an unfair position to put someone in. It's not, that's not what they signed up for. Like this is some of these situations are life and death. And if you've never experienced that, then to be able to understand what it's like to be in that situation, to have to make those choices in the, in the milliseconds that, that you have to make them. Um, the fact that more people don't, the fact that more of those situations don't end um, the way that one could have um, is, is, is nothing short of miraculous. I think um, yeah. all, all the time police officers are put into those situations and um, it's really unfair how we have to scrutinize that. And it's the same for us crisis counselors, right? Mm -hmm. um, people are always expecting us to be able to come in and kind of, I always say wave a magic wand and just, and just fix things. And it's just, it's not how the world works. Right. Um, sometimes things get messy. Sometimes things get ugly. That's, you know, and that's a sad reality, but it is in fact reality. And, and you know, the example that I use for this is um, uh, maybe a couple years ago, there, there were these uh, benches in Ben's Park. Uh, which is, you know, the park downtown there. And uh, all these people using synthetic marijuana, K2, spice, whatever, would go and they get super high and then they'd fall asleep on these benches and a lot of the homeless folks would fall asleep on them too. Um, so people would call in all the time and complain about this. So eventually the county was like, all right, well, we'll put up a little divider on the benches so that people can't sleep there and we'll try and get people out of the park. Well, they put that divider up and there's this just like social media hellstorm. Like, how, how dare we do this? Like, how dare we put this divider here? Like, we need to be decent to people. And it's like, what do you, what do you want? Right. And I think what people actually want is they want, they want to feel safe, but they also want to feel good about it. Yeah. And it's just, it's just not, a, it's not a real expectation. You, you yeah. can't, you can't expect that from the world. Sometimes in order to achieve the things that we need to achieve in society, things will get ugly. And I think that people have a hard time coming to grips with that. Yeah. No, I think it's a very valid point. I think a lot of people want to believe that they somehow can enact reform and things to completely eradicate uh, bad things from happening or evil things from happening. And it's just, it's, it's just not possible. I so appreciate Ryan Davies coming on to the podcast. Uh, you can tune in next week for part two of my conversation with him, uh, which is also really interesting. Uh, but I did, I did want to speak to something he said in this episode, um, and something that I've I've spoken to before, and and that's to the point that he made that true evil, bad acts, and and sin are really a reality in our world, uh, and dealing with it makes us uncomfortable as people. No matter how hard we try as people, we will never eradicate bad acts, evil, or sin. Uh, we as people are not capable of doing that. We have the police to try and deter and stop criminal bad acts and evil from occurring, but they themselves are not perfect. Uh, they will make mistakes. The police will make mistakes or be taken in uh, by the evil themselves and do things that bring shame to others that, that wear the badge. We've, we've seen that happen with other officers. The other thing we can tend to do is want evil acts to be dealt with, but then we become uncomfortable with what that may take or what it may look like or what it does take or what it does look like. Uh, we, we also expect it to be done perfectly uh, with, with imperfect people, with imperfect police officers. It will never happen. Uh, but we don't like feeling a certain way. 
we generally don't like feeling a certain way. We have to be careful that our feelings don't drive us because that's when we get way off track. Uh, People crave safety. For some, safety and comfort are their God. Um, And yet many times, those who crave safety and comfort do not understand. uh, And I'm, I'm talking about those who it is one of or the most important thing to them and 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 actually i think in this country safety and and comfort are oftentimes elevated very high in our lives we want to be safe we want to be comfortable and uh we don't sometimes understand the sacrifices and the ugliness that happens to maintain that In our world where righteous violence meets evil violence, it is often captured on video for all to see, and it makes us uncomfortable. And sometimes people mistake that uncomfortable feeling, that uncomfortableness, to mean that what they are seeing is wrong, so they want to hold someone accountable. And often the people they pick to hold accountable are the police. And I I think part of that is because subconsciously they know that they can because the police are far more willing to be held accountable than criminals who disregard all accountability. So that pressure then is exponentially placed on officers. And all this pressure is put on with the hindsight bias, meaning those placing the pressure have the luxury of knowing how the incident ends and what the outcome is while the officers dealing with it do not have that luxury. For instance, people see a suspect high on drugs or intoxicated, not appearing violent, but causing a disturbance or possibly down and out on the sidewalk or the road. The police show up with five officers or three officers or four officers, whatever many. Maybe force is used. Maybe it's not used. If force is used, people decide whether or not they like it or if they feel that it was correct. Lots of feelings about it and judgments made. If force isn't used, they may question the need for multiple officers and the heavy police presence for such a simple or minor thing in their mind. But rarely does anyone question the choices of the suspect. I've talked about this before. Rarely does anyone want to call to account the suspect who chose to get high or drunk and stop traffic or be a general nuisance. Rarely does anyone consider that probably every officer there has gone to a simple intoxicated person call only to find themselves in a knockdown, drag-out fight with someone who has taken a substance that gives them literally superhuman strength. So maybe that's why five officers went. Uh, because I've been in fights like that where people are unbelievably strong, where it takes three, four, five officers to literally get that person into custody. No one stops to consider that the force used may be correctly applied within policy within the law. Instead, deciding that because it makes them feel bad or makes them feel uncomfortable, it must then be wrong. And all these decisions are made with hindsight bias. And what I mean by that is the person making these judgments has the absolute luxury of knowing exactly how it ends because they saw the before, they saw the during, and they saw the after. The police, they don't know. They are living it as it happens and doing the best they can. It's really really an arrogant attitude to literally have no training on use of force, no training on the law, no training on policy and procedure, and to have uh, no on-the-job experience, to have never done it, and to know only how it begins and ends and yet believe that they could somehow do it better. And then off of this, place an unbelievable amount of pressure on officers who are willing to sacrifice much in order to provide them with safety and comfort that many crave and worship. We expect our police officers to rub shoulders with the worst of the worst. And we should. That's what we pay them to do. We expect them to wade waist deep through absolute filth of humanity day in and day out, but not have any of that rub off on them. To display levels of empathy over and over again to people they don't know that engage in lifestyle decisions and choices that bring them in contact with the police who generally hate the police until they need them, we literally expect them to be perfect, to have unending empathy with no end, to be taken from on every single shift, but still have more to give. We need them to be perfect, sinless beings as they deal with terrible, sin-filled people and situations. 
We conjole them and beg them to be better. We demand they be better. We scream in their faces that they suck and that they're pigs. We lump them all, we lump them, all of them, in with those who are criminals in a uniform. We see one police officer do a bad thing and we define, quote unquote, the police as that one. Instead of just holding that one accountable, we want to label the police to say the police are the problem. Some police are the problem, but not all the police. And it's wrong to lump them all together, and I see that happening all the time. But what many don't do is call the culture to change. We say our police are rotted to the core, but what's really rotted to the core is the culture we don't want to get after. Case in point is what recently happened in Oakland, California. Uh, It was what police believe was a gang-related shooting where approximately 5,000 people were gathered to celebrate Juneteenth. Uh, In this shooting, one man was killed and seven were injured. As As first responder ambulance crews were trying to get through the scene, they were blocked by the crowd. Women began twerking against the ambulance and on the hood of the ambulance. A male climbed on top of the ambulance, further inciting the crowd. There's video of this. It's disgusting. According to the chief, this prevented the ambulance from being able to leave the scene to get injured victims to the hospital. The chief thanked other people in the crowd for helping to open the roadway. One of the disheartening things about this video was the complete lack of police presence. I didn't see any police presence in this video. No police clearing the street, and quite honestly, if they had tried to, this story, which hardly saw any press, would be getting all kinds of press. Seriously, I tried to do a Google search for this story, and one major news agency had an article about it on the first page of my Google search. One. I hit page two of the Google search. Still, no major news agencies were carrying this story. But we know if the police would have been involved and would have cleared that street and would have used force to clear that street, it would have been on a lot more news agencies' uh, front pages. And that's because the police would have used force to do it. They most likely verbal directions would have not worked with this crowd. Telling the crowd to disperse most likely would have not worked. Highly unlikely. Thankfully, there appears to have been some decent people in the crowd who could do what the police are no longer allowed to do. Um, Just to bring some perspective to this, to how police could deal with this and the considerations Um, Should verbal directions not work? Could have they used pepper spray? Possibly. Possible option, but then you run the risk of contaminating the ambulance crew and the victims that they're trying to help. Could they have used tear gas? Even less of an option than pepper spray, for the same reasons. Could they use riot gear, batons, and shields to push the crowd back? Absolutely. And that would have worked. But people wouldn't not have liked that, and the optics would have been bad because we're so concerned with how it looks and how it makes us feel. And then what about the guy on top of the ambulance? Courts say you can't tase him anymore, because if you tase him and he falls off and he busts his head open, the police are to blame. Only way to get to him is get up there on top of the ambulance with him. And when you get up there, hope he jumps down to other officers on the ground, or you're going to end up fighting with him on top of the ambulance. And again, if he falls off and busts his head open, you better hope you fall with him, Or you guessed it, you're a pig that pushed a guy who was just dancing and you pushed him off an ambulance and hurt him. That is really what our officer is up against. So it appears the police did nothing because they would face the brunt of rage from people who believe the police are the problem instead of holding accountable those who are engaging in uh, and encouraging absolutely despicable hate behavior. But the other disheartening thing about this video is how it causes me to think about Romans 1, 18-32. And Romans 1, 18-32 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, 
His invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, being understood by what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their reasonings, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible mankind of birds, four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them up to vile impurity in the lusts of their hearts so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for falsehood and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for that which is contrary to nature, and likewise the men too abandoned natural relations with women and burned in their desire toward one another, males with males committing shameful acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a depraved mind to do those things that are not proper, People having been filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, and evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unfeeling, and unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, and those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. But for the mercy of God, this would be me. And I mean that honestly. But this passage is clear that all of us are without excuse. The fact that he created us and the world around us makes the evidence of himself clear within us and around us. We are without excuse. The people acting in completely degenerate ways are without excuse. They see fit to refuse any acknowledgement of God and have or are in danger of being turned completely over to a depraved mind and ultimately eternal separation from God. It seems that this passage is very strong in what God thinks about these things and about sin. Maybe you don't like it, Maybe it makes you feel badly. Maybe it even makes you feel angry when I read that passage. But it stands as the word of God, and how you feel about it means little to the reality of the situation uh, we all face. You may say, well, I don't engage in murder or in the worship of idols, but what about the sins in verse 29? What about deceit? Have you ever been deceitful? What about mercy? Have you ever been without mercy? Or what about disobedient to your parents? Were you ever disobedient to your parents? What about envious? Did you ever envy someone, something they had? What about arrogant or boastful? Maybe you'd say, well, yeah, I've done some of those things, or maybe one of those things, but I'm a good person. I'm not like a murderer. I'm not like those people in Oakland who blocked an ambulance that was trying to help people. I'm not like them. I'm a good person, and let me lay out all the good things I do. But the fact is that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's exactly what Romans 3.23 says. It doesn't say some have sinned. It doesn't say most have sinned. You are not the exception. I am not the exception. Hell is filled with souls that believed they were the exception, that they had done enough but who refused to bow their knee to the only one who saves. Romans 23 says, All have sinned, and all have fallen short. And then the beginning of Romans 6.23 tells us what we deserve for that sin, what we earn for that sin. It gives us our sentence for our sin. It says, For the wages of sin is death. But then it provides the hope that we need. In the second part of that verse, it says, But the gracious gift of God 
is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The path to him becomes clear. It's not through me. It's not through you. It's not through us, but through the gift of his son, Christ Jesus our Lord. A gift. Not something we can earn, but a gift. And the beautiful thing is that if we go back to Romans 1, before the Apostle Paul gave us such a bleak picture as I read earlier, he provides hope in the very verses before that passage. It says in Romans 1, 16-17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous one will live by faith. A gift received by faith alone in Christ alone will save you. And the sacrifice for your sins on the cross by Jesus and his resurrection three days later conquering sin and death will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. This alone will make you righteous in the eyes of God. So how how in the world did we start talking about mental health and end up here? How in the world did I have on Ryan Davies, who I really appreciate, and I really appreciated his thoughts. How did I end up having him on to talk about mental health and end up here? Because for me, it always has to end up back at Jesus. To end anywhere else leaves me without hope. It leaves you without hope. It leaves us without hope. It leaves our culture without hope. But we have a hope, and his name is Jesus. This is what I know to be true, not because I believe it, but because his word proclaims it. I could easily only provide my take on the issue, on the issues facing law enforcement, and I could rail against the absolute disregard I see for this honorable profession. I could add to the never-ending deluge of opinion and ideas, but it would really do nothing for your soul if you don't know the one who saves. That's why we ended up here, and I urge you to confess, believe, and be saved. It is the simple message of Romans 10.9 that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is something I can kick up the dust after, and I hope you can as well. Finally, if you're in law enforcement, be safe out there. Know that I, along with what I believe is most of this country, actually support you. Uh, It may not seem like it at times, but I do really believe that the silent majority wants you to stay strong and to continue to kick up the dust in pursuit of the lawbreakers. Cue that dip and know that I appreciate you.